Stand Up For The Truth is sponsored by Lakeshore Communications Incorporated and made possible by your generous tax-deductible donations at StandUpForTheTruth.com slash donate. This is Stand Up For The Truth, educating, empowering, and connecting Christians to stand on God's Word and Truth. The man who won't stand up for his own principles is not really a man at all. Get involved by emailing comments at StandUpForTheTruth.com. You can't handle the truth! Now, here's the host of Stand Up For The Truth, Mike LeMay. Unashamed of the gospel, standing on the truth of God in the Bible. Mike LeMade and David Fiorazzo, we welcome you to another edition of Stand Up For The Truth. Thank you so much for taking some time out of your busy day to join us. I hope the next hour is one that blesses and edifies you. Father God, we live in a world that's trying to confuse us, that's trying to make the simple complex. Lord, help us by the power of your word and spirit to understand the simple message of the gospel that we are sinners, separated from our Creator. God, that you are right and we are wrong. And all you ask is that we acknowledge our guilt before you. And when we do that and profess our need for a Savior, you provide your grace through the cross and what Jesus Christ accomplished, his death, his burial, and his resurrection. Lord, help us to be of sound mind. Help us to to fully receive that mind of Christ that Paul says we now have, uh, to stand up against a world that's trying to complicate a very simple message that you, a just, righteous, and holy God, want to reconcile sinful men to yourself. We thank you, Lord, for this opportunity to share your word, and we ask your blessing upon our show. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Today's guest is Dr. Corey Miller. He's a Ph.D. He's the president and CEO of Ratio Christi. Now, he grew up in Utah as a sixth-generation Mormon. He came to Christ in 1988, and he has since been a youth and college pastor, a Bible college and university professor, a campus minister, a lecturer, and first and foremost, an evangelist. Sounds like God has had Dr. Miller busy. He is currently president and CEO of Ratio Christi, as we talked about, and he joins us this morning to talk about the growing threats to religious freedom for Christians on our college campuses. Dr. Miller, welcome back to Stand Up For The Truth. Thanks. Good to be back. Appreciate what you guys do. Well, thank you, sir. Also to you. Hey, great victory for Ratio Christi at the University of Colorado, Colorado Springs recently. Can you tell us what happened and how it's been taken care of? Yeah, it's uh, a second federal victory in the last about 18 months out of uh, 15 cases of legal proceedings. Uh, the one in uh, Colorado Springs happened to be something along the lines that people might understand as an all-comers policy. It's a little bit different than that, but very similar. And that is that uh, to have your university or to have your religious club or any club for that matter approved by the university, you have to sign a document such that not only your members uh, can basically believe anything, but your leaders as well. And that's just common sense ludicrous, <laughs> because you would expect that, you know, a vegetarian society wouldn't be required to have a meat eater to be their, uh, you know, president of their club without getting disapproved. But yet that's what happened uh, two years in a row. So we've been off campus for that uh, amount of time and, and finally decided to take it legal and uh, won. So uh, they acquiesced and settled in court, outside of court. 
It's probably happening across the country, uh, Dr. Miller, that, um, and a lot of times it's not being fought. I'm thankful for this suit, thankful for you guys, Alliance Defending Freedom, but uh, we've heard the reports and we're seeing the trends. Uh, it is becoming a very intolerant environment when it comes to Christianity, but the university system is supposed to be uh, uh, beacons of uh, free speech and tolerance. Yes, it, it is, as long as you believe what they want you to believe. <laughs> it's a yeah. great tolerant place. Yeah, in fact, I had my own case of legal proceedings a couple of years ago at Indiana University. Um, I had a former pastor who turned gay, and it was an ethics class. Uh, I taught the class for almost a, you know 10 years at that time, using the same atheistic textbooks, uh, having articles required for them to read that didn't agree with my position. But once we got to the area in human sexuality, of course, I'm going to give both sides, and I'm going to give the Christian perspective. And uh, this time, uh, I happened to have that student in the classroom. It wasn't my first time having a gay student, but someone who is a, an activist, mm. and he charged me with creating a suicidal environment oh, merely because I gave the other side, and he complained to the administration that the uh, suicide rate is much higher per capita among the homosexual community than outside of it, and he didn't want to be another victim, and I made him feel terrible, apparently. Ugh. And so uh, I had to bring in Alliance Defending Freedom, and I had two students, a, an activist atheist and another uh, student who was a pantheist, take my uh, defense as well and uh, threaten the university that they would leave that university and go elsewhere if I was unduly punished because they said they recorded my lectures, they disagree with my belief in God and my view on sexuality, but I did nothing wrong, and it wasn't free thinking if I got punished unduly. So, but it, it ended, uh, I got exonerated uh, with that, and the student, when I talked with him, uh, since you mentioned tolerance, he said, I said, what about tolerance? You were trying to get me fired for teaching all views to give an education rather than an indoctrination. He says, I don't believe in being tolerant to the intolerant, smiled and walked away. Uh, so that's, well, that's the comeback. That's the comeback. I, I don't believe in being Tolerant to the intolerant. So it, so it points back to Christians and those who, with conservative or, you know, a biblical worldview, we're the intolerant ones, so they get a free pass, and they don't have to tolerate us then. That's, I guess that's how it is now. Yeah, it's, it's really a, a Stalinistic environment where Stalin said that ideas are more powerful than weapons. We don't allow our enemies to have weapons. Why should we let them have ideas? Mm. You know, Dr. Miller, I always find it fascinating when members of the LGBTQ community cite the accurate statistics that up to 40% of them strongly consider committing suicide, but they blame us because we, quote unquote, don't tolerate them. Instead of really looking and understanding the reason they're depressed is they are disconnected from their creator. And we have a case in California right now where California is poised to ban what's called reparative therapy. So in other words, if someone is a homosexual or struggling with, uh, with their gender identity, you can't use the Bible to show them the truth. So to me, it's kind of an interesting dichotomy. They're right. Up to 40% of them do struggle with suicidal thoughts, but they're unwilling to hear the real reason for their struggle. 
Yeah, it's clear that there is association going on there, but to claim causation requires a lot more, and they just don't have the facts, but it doesn't matter. They've got public sentiment, Mm. and I think that's where we're at in our culture right now is that persuasion isn't grounded merely in logic, uh, but in victimhood. And uh, if you can claim an oppressed class, that scores uh, many, many more points than mere logic. Are we approaching the point, you talk about public opinion, Dr. Miller, have we reached a tipping point? I, I think it used to be in our nation where one could safely say the majority of Americans uh, somewhat believed in the Bible and believed in the, the moral code of the Bible, but it seems now we're in the minority. Have we reached a tipping point where being in the minority could lead to uh, further discrimination and potentially persecution? Absolutely. And Edmund Burke said all that needs to happen for evil to triumph is for good people to stand by and do nothing. Um, I think you've got, you know, a a large, large segment of Christians who are the type that go along to get along. And when uh, homosexuality was unpopular, the masses were fine siding with that. Now that it somehow has rapidly become vogue, um, now the masses, even within the churches, uh, seem to be backing that and endorsing that. 73% of Gen Z embrace gay marriage. So if you're a, a pastor uh, looking at the future with the you know incoming college gradu- graduates, uh, you've got to think, maybe I don't want to talk about that any more than I do things like divorce because we've got such a high rate of that. Maybe mm-hmm. we can just talk about... Um, Let's talk about social justice and helping the poor. Yeah, That seems to be the safe island everyone's willing to address. Dr. Miller, it's been probably over a year since we've had you on the show, and I apologize for that. For our new listeners, would you take a few minutes to explain the mission and operational structure of Ratio Christi? Sure. Ratio Christi's mission is a global movement equipping students and professors with historical, philosophical, and scientific reasons for following Jesus. We operate on college campuses primarily, but also in conjunction with local churches with our high school ministry. And then, of course, on the campuses, it's whole campus, not just a partition. We have a professor's ministry as well. And that's, I think, the, in my view, it's the greatest omission of the Great Commission. Hardly anyone is reaching the professor, and yet that is the most influential Mm. post of the most influential institution in Western civilization. As goes the university, so goes the culture, and currently, as goes the U.S. university, so goes the world. Would you say the greater challenge to the work you have at Ratio Christi is leftist activism or Christian apathy? Yes. (laughs) <laughs> Both, huh? Yeah, uh, we, we've realized that we've got a two-front battle here. On the one hand, if you see pollution downstream, you want to go upstream to resolve it. Um, and that is the universities, when we look at how influential the universities are and how they once were ours, and they've been hijacked and taken over, and now we are outsiders trying to peek in the window if, if we're allowed. On the other hand, uh, we've realized we've got a battle going with uh, in the church, and uh, some of our greatest obstacles for our missionaries are pastors, unfortunately. Um, sometimes they 
don't understand or appreciate the role of apologetics in the life of the mind and in evangelism, whether it's pre-evangelism, post-evangelism, or evangelism proper. And sometimes I think apologists in the past, defenders of the faith, that is, have given a reason for people to be suspicious because they behave like eggheads. They have a hard time relating to people. But other times, I think the, the pastoral community, uh, and that is just a segment of those who don't appreciate the kind of work that we do, um, they're following more the cultural um, waves and trends rather than seeing what Scripture says in terms of being prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you for the reason, for the hope that's in you, and do it with gentleness and respect. When Peter uses that, he uses it as an imperative. It's a command. It is not a suggestion. And so for those who disregard or don't use uh, apologetics uh, as part of their tool chest of evangelism, they're actually in disobedience to the Scripture. to think that we're not being um, affected by the questions in our culture is just um, beyond me. You can't do evangelism anymore without apologetics, especially at the university. This is not your grandmother's America anymore. We're not, we're not in Acts chapter 2. We're not visiting the synagogues here. We're in Acts 17, Mars Hill. Our culture is post-Christian, and that is the mm-hmm. central characteristic of Generation Z. Boy, I was going to ask you so, about—oh, go ahead. Yeah. Finish. Well, <laughs> I, so I, I just—I just, I guess I would cap that off with our, our new strategy includes trying to reach the uh, upstream from the pastoral community to their trainers, that is, the seminary professors. So we, we hire a lot of our people from seminaries, not all, but uh, many— and, um, you know, we want to influence the professors to have a good ethos and relationship with us as they're training their pastoral community downstream so that we are thinking, you know, even decades out uh, of getting the church on board with apologetics evangelism. I love the title of your book is Faith in God Reasonable, but it seems like you need at least patience or some reason to be able to have that conversation in the first place. And as we mentioned, the environment, not only on college campuses, but across the country, seems to be uh, pretty fragile and volatile right now. But I wanted to ask you about something you said, that we do have a responsibility, the Great Commission, to share the gospel, to go, and also to always be ready to give an answer. But we all would probably agree that the church is just simply not equipped and then there are people that, because of the hostile environment toward the things of God and Christianity in America now, a lot of people have backed away, backed out of culture due to fear, or they just don't want to be called hateful or intolerant, or they don't want to talk about those social issues. Dr. Miller, what advice can you give so many who have just kind of avoided spiritual conversations or the things of God because of this environment? Martin Niemöller, uh, Lutheran pastor in the World War II era, commented in retrospect to what was happening. He said, sort of poetically, first they came after the um, socialists, but I was not a socialist, so I said nothing. Then they came after the trade unionists, I was not one of them, so I said nothing. Then they came after the Jews, but I was not a Jew, so I said nothing. And last of all, they came after me, but there was no one left to speak up. Mm. 
if we don't unite now with strength in numbers, we're facing a, a losing battle going forward. Um, in fact, what's happening is a lot of our, our own are being uh, conscripted to almost work for the other side because the rhetoric plays on the emotions, uh, on the sympathy of the victim card. That's where we're at in, say, identity politics. And identity politics is even shaping the current church right now. If you get people who can uh, whine the loudest and claim victimhood the most, and I'm not saying that there aren't victims out there, there aren't oppressed out there, but that becomes the chief identifier and it becomes the modus operandi uh, for the church to be able to sate or satisfy or, or, or sort of comfort uh, these people claiming to be afflicted. When we do that, we're letting the tail wag the dog. And the church right now, I think, is, is going astray, largely. Uh, we're being manipulated by pop culture, by pop culture ethics. Um, telling us what compassion is, what social just, what justice is, that it's no longer justice, justice, but it's social justice, hmm. uh, which in most cases I think is anti-biblical, uh, not the part about, you know, helping out human sex slaves. Those are genuinely oppressed. But when it comes to economic justice or redistribution of wealth, it's Marxism or LGBT justice, which is asking for equality, for transgender, for homosexuality. And, and by equality, there's something else in that Trojan horse. It's not just uh, tolerance and equal treatment of people. There's something else there, um, whether it's uh, abortion rights or what they call reproductive justice. <laughs> I think the church is being taken by that whole social justice narrative, which yes. in most cases is unjust. Indeed. Dr. Miller, you have a fascinating history and testimony. You're a former seventh-generation Mormon. Uh, you have co-authored a book, Leaving Mormonism, Why Four Scholars Changed Their Minds. What changed your mind about being a Mormon? Well, I was 16 when I was first seriously challenged with the gospel. I had a friend who was also ex-Mormon, invited me to California for the summer, and his father conditioned it on us going to a Christian camp, which we did for one week. And when I was there, uh, someone spoke on hell. And I tell people that literally scared the hell out of me and heaven right into it. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'd never really heard about hell, and what hell did was to put things in proper perspective. I, I really came to grips with my sin. Sin became utterly sinful, as Paul talks about, you know, in areas in Romans 6 and 7, especially. And that made sense of grace. Grace, growing up as a Mormon, uh, wasn't as meaningful, because it's almost a universalistic notion that people are all going to one part of heaven. Uh, but when I heard that gospel with the background of my knowledge of sin, it made sense. It rocked my world. Uh, I saw grace for what it really was and clung to Jesus. And then I also saw um, in the community of people that I was engaging with uh, authenticity that I hadn't encountered in religion, which is very superficial in Mormonism. 
And so that made me, uh, you know, want to stay there for the whole next year. I stayed in California, lived with a Christian family, got discipled, and it was a very seminal period of my life uh, because when I came back my senior year to high school, that's when uh, the heat got turned on. Uh, many of my extended family, my friends, my culture, they were challenging me that I had made a severe mistake that as an apostate, as one who left the faith, uh, who knew it was true, I could be classified a son of perdition and spend an eternity worse off than Hitler. So I was challenged to reread the Book of Mormon again, this time for the sake of truth and not tradition. I did, found it to be wanting in many ways, and it made me glad that I'd left Mormonism. But now I, I was faced with the thought, well, what if the Bible is not true? I was always taught that as a Mormon, that it always had corruptions, but we had a living prophet. Since I no longer believe in a living prophet in modern revelation, how do I know the Bible is reliable? How do I know God even exists, and if so, which God? Hmm. And that sent me for a period of time into a period of skepticism, um, and I, I needed to know that I know that I know uh, that something was true, and I, I engaged in philosophy and comparative religions, and that's what sent me on the trajectory to where I'm at today, uh, but now as a convinced follower of Jesus. Okay, Dr. Miller, I'm sitting at home Saturday morning. I'm reading my paper. Uh, I look, and coming down the street are two young, well-dressed Mormon men on their bicycles, and they're approaching my front door. Should I, A, close the curtains and pretend I'm home and ignore their knock, or B, invite them in and have a conversation with them? <laughs> I refer uh, in my book to the bash and the dash approach for Christians. The bash approach is you grab the biggest Bible in your house you can find, open the door and, you know, smack them on the head and give all <laughs> kinds of theological bangs. Uh, the bigger the bang, the better. Um, that's the bash approach. That's sort of like, you know, the to exaggerate it, the Westboro Baptist Church. That's, that's not loving. We don't want that. The dash approach is any better um, you're not harming, but you're not loving. You don the blinds, you close the door, pretend you're not home. Meanwhile, these people are on their way to hell, and they're going to be out there taking other people with them. Hmm. So uh, that's not a loving thing to do. Um, you know, you can you can love someone, um, or you can tell the truth without love, but you cannot love without telling the truth. Hmm. And we have got to tell the truth, we've got to be able to engage Mormons, including Mormon missionaries. I don't know that it's wise for a new Christian to go solo on having the conversations with them, because like cults, they tend to uh, not only be deceived, but also pass on the deception to other people and twist people into theological pretzels. If someone's prepared, if they know the scriptures, uh, then I think it's great. Invite them in um, and you know, love them like Christ would and tell the truth in love. Mm. Um, but that requires you to be prepared to give exactly. an answer to everyone who asks you for the reason and the hope that lies within you. Amen. Hey, Dr. Miller, final question for you, and we appreciate you taking the time. I do want uh, you to spend a few minutes telling people how they can connect with Rosho Christie and get involved in supporting your work. But I want to go back to a gem you dropped about seven minutes ago, and I'd like you to expound it a little bit. You said, quote, we are not in Acts 2, we are in Acts 17. Can you just expound on that a little bit? Yes. With the millennial generation, the assumption, as some who are writing on Generation Z or the I-generation say, uh, 
we lost the millennial generation, but our approach for the millennialists uh, is such that in the book of Acts, Paul had two different audiences, the Jews and the Greeks. And for the Jews, he would typically go into the synagogues, he would meet with the choir, so to speak, and he would persuade them, the Scripture says, through the Scriptures that Christ was the Messiah. But when he went to the Greeks, people who did not assume the inspiration of the Bible, um, or let alone even know about the historicity of it, those people were not going to listen to the Scriptures. They wanted to hear reason. And so in Mars Hill, or in the Agora, or the marketplace, Paul went with a different set of uh, conversation points. He said, to the Jew I become a Jew, to the Greek I become a Greek. Well, our culture, uh, our Christian culture, has been going after people in our culture like we are in the synagogues, like we are with the choir, like we're in Acts chapter 2, just communing together with people who believe that the Bible is the Word of God, who assume a Judeo-Christian ethic, and who are, uh, you know, believe that God exists. None of that is true anymore. Uh, our culture is a post-Christian culture, and it's becoming um, hostile to Christianity in many respects, too. The Barna, latest Barner research shows that uh, 40% of adults believe that if you proselytize, that is, try to convert other people, you are an extremist. But if you're a Christian who proselytizes, 60% think you're an extremist. Christianity is under attack in this nation, and people are going to the world thinking that we're talking to the choir. We're not. This is not our grandmother's America anymore, and if we keep using the same tactics as we did with the millennials, it's not that we will, all, we will lose Gen Z. Gen Z is already gone. I, <laughs> we'll, we'll, lose them. we'll lose two generations in a row, which spells some serious disaster for the country as well. We need to be going to our culture being prepared to give an answer. We need apologetics. Apologetics is not only a command in Scripture, it's back in demand. And I hope the pastors listening, who often follow sociological trends and social cues, are reading the latest Barner research. Uh, when one question was asked about what do you think uh, non-believers would reinvigorate interest in Christianity with, almost half of the non-believers answered by greater evidence. When they asked the same question of Christians, what they thought non-believers would say, only 12% of Christians thought non-believers would be interested in evidence, which shows mm. that we are woefully out of touch with our culture, mm. and we better get it right pretty soon. We better indeed. Dr. Miller, thank you so much for your time. How can we support you and the work of Ratio Christi? Please go to ratiochristi.org, R-A-T-I-O-C-H-R-I-S-T-I. There are places you can contact us about starting up chapters, about uh, getting your students involved in chapters that are already in existence at the university. Look, we're on 170-somewhat campuses, but there's about 4,500 campuses across the nation, and we need your help to uh, start new chapters at new universities. We also need financial help as well. It takes uh, fuel to get this fire blazing. We try to help the church, we try to help other campus ministries, and we certainly try to evangelize uh, the world and reclaim the voice of Christ at the university. And listeners, God has given us the fuel. Let's just stoke the fire by supporting wonderful ministries like Rosho Christie. Dr. Miller, thank you so much for your time. I hope it uh, won't be another year before we, we reconnect. 
Sure enough. Appreciate you guys. Thanks a lot. Thank God you. Bless. God bless you. Dr. Corey Miller, President and CEO of Rachel Christie Ministries. When David and I come back, a warning and admonition to the American church from a missionary. If you want more info on the topics of today's show, then visit StandUpForTheTruth.com. Now, back to Mike LeMay. Several times in Revelation 2 and 3, uh, Jesus says to the churches, Let he who has an ear hear what the Spirit says. Well, I think a very clarion warning was just given to the American church by President uh, uh, David Curry, president of Open Doors USA. And his warning is the American church is inoculated by entertainment while the worldwide church is being murdered. Uh, The president, Mr. Curry, reports on the global persecution of Christians, and he penned an op-ed in which he lamented the American church's lack of interest in the suffering of their brothers and sisters in other countries. And he says uh, he talks about 17 Christians in uh, Nigeria that were kidnapped, forced into slavery. Some were raped. Some were murdered by radical Islamic jihadists. And he said this, quote, If such violence had occurred in Nashville rather than Nigeria, it would dominate nightly news broadcasts and saturate social media feeds. American churches would be launching fundraising campaigns for victims' families and addressing it in their weekly gatherings. In this case, however, the American church has barely acknowledged it. Very, very sad. Yeah, I I like a couple things right away that it's very thought-provoking, just the title alone when it says the American church is inoculated by entertainment. Now, we know what the culture is, Um, Hollywood, media, um, primetime television, the gaming industry, but the church inoculated by entertainment. And also uh, our general lack of interest in the suffering of our family in Christ, our brothers and sisters in other countries, I don't think we can deny that. And there's such disinterest. And so to me, there's a disconnect with Christians and a lack of understanding about the overall body of Christ. They see their local church and people they hang out with, and they don't identify these people as Christians that are suffering But if it was someone in their family on a missionary trip or something like that, oh, my goodness, they would be concerned. So I don't know how to bridge that divide. Yeah, I I don't know, David. It's like if it doesn't happen, if it doesn't affect my household and family, it it isn't an important issue. You know, Dr. Uh, Curry goes on to say that violence against Christians in India has increased 400 percent since 2014 due to hostility from Hindus. Mm. And with Prime Minister Narandi Modi in power, Christians have been deemed inferior to other Indians. Mm -hmm. We often uh, hear of Hinduism being this peaceful religion. You know, let's meditate, let's do this. 400% increase in violence. And he says, yet the leadership of the American church with its super pastors and mega churches is whistling through the graveyard. The beast that we have created which relies on upbeat music and positivity to attract donors and sustain large budgets, leaves little room for pastors to talk about the suffering of global Christians. How often do we hear the suffering of global Christians? We, we talk about it a lot in our fellowship, we, and we try to pray regularly for them. But I think in most American churches, again, I don't know, David, it's like, well, that's somebody else's problem. It's not ours. It's going to be our problem really soon if we continue to ignore it. I agree. But how can you talk about this issue, Mike, if 
if you are preaching a theology of life enhancement and life improvement and your best life now, and every day is a Friday. I There are many pastors, and a couple of them come to mind, and you know who they are, word, faith preachers and prosperity gospel preachers. It would seem to contradict their message if they acknowledged the persecution of Christians and even the discrimination of, against Christians here in America, let alone abroad. But I think it goes against popular theologies. But I love the way this is worded. We're with our super pastors and mega churches. We're whistling through the graveyard. Mm. There's some. I mean, these are very provocative words, but I think I'm thankful he uses them because I don't think they're exaggerations, and I think it, it paints a pretty good picture of generally of the American church. Like you said, there are churches that are praying for the persecuted. We are concerned. We are helping ministries like Open Doors, Voice of the Martyrs, and others, but. The, for the most part, it's not a popular message you would hear in America. You don't even hear it brought up. No, you know what you, uh, he goes on to say here? Generally, what you hear in American church is a lot of talk about college entrance scandals, Game of Thrones. I have no idea what Game of Thrones is, but I, from what I hear, it's just like I'm, there's Christians into it big time. Uh, and, you know, another thing, we love to argue about things that we really shouldn't argue about. We're going to talk about that in our Q&A question tomorrow. There's, there's this this battle going on in the church over Calvinist and Arminius thought, and we're focusing all of our efforts on this instead of really looking at the church as a worldwide entity of Christ. Uh, Dr. Curry goes on to say, at Open Doors, we encourage Christian allies to write letters to encourage victims of religious violence, pray for specific incidents reported through the international network, and host events in churches to help raise awareness. I envision a world where American Christians remember persecuted Christians in hostile regions in every church on every Sunday. Wouldn't that be nice? Uh, he then finally, in closing, quotes uh, the late revivalist Leonard Ravenhill, and he said this, Why should the world take us seriously when we don't take God seriously? Come on. When were you last in a prayer meeting that was bathed in tears? Mm. Or someone got angry over the monopoly of the devil in the world. I keep saying to people, get out of your playpen spiritually. Come on. Come on. We need to do that. We, we need to stop playing church, and we need to be the church. So uh, it's a very interesting article. Before we go to break, David, any, any final thoughts on it? I can only point to these uh, well-worded um, sentences here in this article inoculated by entertainment and self-absorption, the American church is completely detached from the experience of the global church. And he said the American church is feeding itself, not, not food now, entertainment and whatever is popular and going on in the church, feeding itself to death while the worldwide church is being murdered. And it is. The numbers are astounding. The persecution is at its highest level in history across the board in different countries, not just in the most hostile to Christian countries, but other countries. And I don't know. We are we are detached. Mm -hmm. And it does—nothing's going to help other than repentance and prayer. And if we are not—like, I think the quote—did you read that, or was that the J.C. Ryle quote? No, uh, the Ravenhill quote I read. Yeah, the Ravenhill quote. I want to talk about when was the last time um, we were, had a prayer meeting that was bathed in tears, meaning I think of Reverend David Wilkerson and others— um, Jeremiah, the weeping prophet, others who are really 
emotionally connected to the heart of God and compassionate for other people and are weeping in their prayers to God for persecuted Christians. I even have some things to clear up in my heart, my hardened heart, when it comes to praying for our persecuted brothers and sisters. I am very concerned. But I think generally this this makes a lot of great points in this article that we generally are detached. How? How do we get this message, not to the world, in the church? How do we get more Christians engaged? Yeah, it's a challenge. You know, uh, Curry said that one in every nine Christians around the world will suffer their faith to the point of potential death this year. And we just, uh, we're more worried about Games of Thrones and college entrance examination scandals. When we come back, conflicting polls on if America is more is is against abortion more than it has been previously. If you want more info on the topics of today's show, then visit StandUpForTheTruth.com. Now, back to Mike LeMay. All right, Mr. Fiorazzo, I'm confused about something. We're seeing more and more polls showing that Americans are supporting the life of unborn children in the womb, that more and more are becoming pro-life. But ABC News and The Washington Post says it ain't so. So, I mean, what should I believe here, David? Well, I think the answer to that is easy. If a majority of the research that we've seen over the last two decades or more and a majority of the polls have been saying more Americans, especially young people, are pro-life and a majority of Americans, we already know this, I think it's some in the 80-some percent don't believe Americans should be funding abortion or be giving our taxpayer dollars to Planned Parenthood at all. Now, that doesn't mean they're pro-life, but that means they don't believe the Planned Parenthood should get funding. And then the infanticide, a massive majority is against infanticide, meaning we should protect babies who are born alive that make it that survive abortions and are living a majority of americans believe you should give them care and this new poll comes out it, understand the sources now we don't know who they talked to who they polled but i could guess abc news washington post they say 60% of americans believe abortion should be legal in all or most cases and they say they're celebrating it's the highest percentage since 1995 um they found an uptick by 11 percentage points for Americans who believe abortion should be legal in all cases, which, again, goes against every other poll I've seen up until looking at this one. Um, I want to go over to an article over at Life News. It says, huh, I think this came out, these both came out the same day, yesterday. Yeah. Now, this one, here's the headline. Poll, or polls show... Americans support unborn children, and Americans want all or most abortions illegal. So right here, friends who are media news consumers, we have two conflicting headlines talking about the same subject, talking about the same issue, and one of them cannot be true. Let's try to break this down. I want to go to the uh, one from Christian Headlines here, citing the ABC News Washington Post poll, and it says 60% of Americans believe abortion should be legal in all or most cases. Statistics don't lie, but people who use them do. Let's try to break this down a little bit. They go a little later in paragraph three, David. They say, for those who do not adhere to any religion, so 
I'm not a religious guy, 85%, while 37% of non-evangelical Protestants do not. Um, Non-evangelical Protestants. Yeah, so so traditional Protestants, traditional Lutheran um, Protestants. So uh, according to this also, 71% of non-evangelical Protestants and 52% of Catholics agree that abortion should be made legal. So when I try to break these down, I try to break them down into people who are unbelievers and people who profess to be believers. But even if I break it down here with the uh, uh, ABC poll, this says that a majority of Catholics agree that abortion should be made legal. I've never understood that. For the longest time, decades, I've never understood how a majority of Catholics can continue to vote for people who support abortion. How a majority of Catholics, and and there's, I believe, 30% of evangelicals voted for Barack Obama, the most pro-abortion president in our history. But a majority of Catholics, let's point this out because it needs to be addressed. There's a new uh, article that I think some bishop or some... One, in the Catholic Church, they must be divided on this issue, the Catholic Church as a whole. I'm not sure exactly what the catechism teaches, but whatever it teaches, it's not getting down to the, to the pews and getting down to the people because the, their hearts aren't changed. If, if half the people are, are pro-abortion, I, we don't believe that's what the Bible teaches. There's a lot, headline that said, Bishop challenges Nancy Pelosi, either change your heart or change your mind on abortion or leave the church. Now, I paraphrased a recent headline. I think I just saw it yesterday. We've seen those headlines before from Joe Biden and others and other uh, these professing Catholics. So what is it, Mike? And I don't want to pick on the Catholics, but this this came up in this poll that we're reading. So it, it is relevant to what we are reading regarding the Americans that support abortion. Why do at least, if, if not a, a majority, let's just say at least, it's safe to say half of the Catholic Church it supports abortion. I don't understand that. The only way I can explain it, David, is abortion is either a central issue to a person or it's a tertiary issue. It's either— Define it is tertiary. Either, uh, you know, minor or one of many issues. So you, you look at the Catholic Church, and it's where does social justice in America start? The Catholic Church in 19th century South America, and it's bled up here to the north. So a lot of Christians, and I'm not just picking on Catholics here, a lot of Christians— give the same weight to abortion that they do to prison reform uh, or border security. So it's, it's one of several issues. Or environmentalism. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Oh, um, but, you know, when you think about it, to that baby and to God, abortion has to be a central issue. We are talking about the life or death of a human being made in the image of God. But I think liberals, through people like Jim Wallace and, and Brian McLaren and others, have convinced professing Christians that abortion is one of many issues. One of, you know, hey, you know, all these issues are important and they're equally right. Flip important. Flip a coin on that one. Yeah. But, I mean, to us who, who believe in God's word and believe that God is the author of life, abortion is, is a fundamental central issue. Uh, Mike, Mike Gallup found that 60% of Americans, and this says it's the exact same thing, it opposes this poll from ABC News and the Liberal Washington Post. 60% of Americans take a pro-life position on abortion. That's what Gallup says. But, Mike, I want to get back to something. I don't want to—this could be a whole, you know, program or two. But can you please differentiate between the Old Testament where, it, it, where God allowed wars, the nation of Israel, to go to war, 
and even wipe out a people. And then individual uh, morality and views on life, meaning when they were sacrificing their children to Molech, the, the false god in the Old Testament, that was an abomination to God. They were, this is what we're doing in America. Planned Parenthood and others were sacrificing America's children to this god of convenience and what they are calling reproductive justice. So we're kind of doing the same thing, but people say, well, God allowed murder. God's not pro-life. He allowed murder in the Old Testament. But again, that goes against the Ten Commandments. The, we have to differentiate between killing and murder. And in uh, um, Genesis 6, after the flood, Genesis 7, uh, God said any animal or human being that murders a human being, his life is to be forfeited. What God did with I and Jericho was justice. These people opposed God. They opposed God's giving the promised land to Israel. God gave them 200 years to repent. They didn't repent. So God, who is the author of life, is the only one who can justly take life. So God did ordain the killing of unbelievers who stood against his will for the Jewish people. With Molech and Baal and the rest of them, this is innocent life. These, these children did nothing they wrong. They were sacrificing their babies. They were sacrificing their babies to this false god. So, we, you know, we often hear the argument from liberals, well, you conservative Christians are hypocritical because you support the death penalty, but you're pro-life. There's nothing hypocritical in that issue. Now, I think a Christian— and I do. I wrestle with this idea of the death penalty. Mm-hmm. I do. I, I, I don't know. I, I, should we be able to take the life of a rapist or a murderer? I think God, God says you can. His life is to be forfeited. But I think we can, in good conscience, wrestle with that. That's a state issue right now. Yeah. But to, to, to equate the death penalty with abortion is exactly what liberals are doing in the Old Testament. Well, God wiped out I. So what's wrong with killing children? I think the other thing that's confusing in these polls, David, is, and and liberals will do this, and we fall for it, they conflate two issues, abortion and taxpayer funding of abortion. So these are two separate issues here. And I think where Christians have boxed ourselves into a corner, we will make these arguments, well, the government shouldn't fund abortion, or this is a state's issue. Well, there's no such thing as government funding. It is all taxpayer funding. Right, but hear me out. Where, where liberals have boxed us in, we're not arguing should, the, should our tax money go to abortion, not is abortion wrong. Or we're arguing, well, isn't, shouldn't Wisconsin decide its own state instead of the federal government? So we're making a secular argument here. So instead of us saying abortion is murder in the eyes of God, we're not arguing if we should fund Planned Parenthood or not. So we've lost, we've already lost the moral argument because we're arguing on the wrong grounds. I have to respectfully disagree. I don't see it that way. I think we're making all those arguments for life. We should not, we not only believe abortion is murder and it's wrong, let, let we me, also believe that we should not be supporting it or allowing our taxpayer dollars to go pay for something we believe is immoral. Thank you. Let me, let me clarify what I was trying to say. I, I didn't mean Christians. I meant Republicans. I meant conservatives. So conservatives argue about the funding of abortion. They argue that it should be a state's right, not a federal mandate. We as Christians, we know abortion's wrong. We know it's murder. But we generally support candidates who make a a secondary argument about the funding of abortion. So uh, the Republican argument basically is if you want to abort your baby, just don't ask David or Michael to pay for it. (laughs) We as Christians say, no, not only are we not going to fund murder, 
but you you can't commit murder. So I, I think we've been boxed in politically on that issue is what I'm trying to say. Hey, shocking news, David. I, I know your jaw just dropped. Wait, can we just say one more thing sure. about this poll? I, the, one more uh, uh, on this poll found that just 38% of Americans take a pro-abortion position and 61% want all or most abortions made illegal. This is from June last month, and this is over at Life News. Uh, Gallup poll, 60% pro-life. Now, we're talking about this poll that just came out, the ABC News Washington Post poll, where it says just the opposite. 60% of Americans support legal abortions. That's over at Christian Headlines, and I'm sure it's at other outlets, too. So be careful how they're twisting some of this, who they're polling. And it's it's no surprise that they're trying to put this out there and, and tweak it. Maybe there's a, a shred of truth in part of what they're saying, but it's not accurate. I think I figured out the problem is Common Core. <laughs> and hear me out here. So, you know, we know that nothing can be more than 100%, right? I mean, right. 100% is it. But maybe maybe Common Core is coming here because they're saying 61% oppose abortion and 60% support abortion. So that'd be 121%. So maybe it's Common Core's fault. Speaking of Common Core, I know, David, you and I were shocked when we read this the other day, but the National Education Association, the Teachers Union, has now come out supporting the fundamental right to an abortion. Now, oh, And pledging to fight the Trump administration on this uh, issue. Absolutely. You know, the, 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 mass, the misogynist killer. Who, uh, he was, anyway, so, you know, this has informally been going on in the NEA for a long time. This is the first time, however, they have come out and formally said um, that they— support the fundamental right to abortion. What in the world does that have to do with education is my question. Well, first of all, this headline, to those of us who are informed and have been uh, up on this issue for years and decades, it's not even newsworthy to us to see that the NEA Teachers Union now supports the right to abortion, meaning they defend a person's right to control their own body is how they put it. They vigorously oppose all attacks on the right to choose. Christian friends, you've got a decision to make. We just gave you biblical arguments without quoting another dozen scriptures or more that God values every human life. Yes. Particularly life in the womb, which is a human life. It's not alien. It's not dead things don't grow. Okay, so that debate is gone. They didn't realize that in 1973 during Roe v. Wade. They didn't have ultrasound and and all the things we have today. So we are saying the the NEA and culture is going against what the Bible teaches. Now the NEA they they're open now coming out openly, but they have given money to Planned Parenthood directly and indirectly. They have campaigned for Democratic candidates for Planned Parenthood who were pro-abortion. They have given money since since Jimmy Carter, a radical leftist president, or he turned into a radical leftist. Maybe he was a little bit more, I don't know, uh, neutral when he was president. Every single president since Jimmy Carter, the NEA has endorsed. They have never, and I rarely use that word, they have never endorsed a Republican president. So now that they're openly coming out and saying, okay, the teachers union now supports the fundamental right to abortion, most of our listeners, I would guess, are not surprised. 
disappointed but not surprised. No, but I'm glad the NEA went on record because now you as parents who send your children to public reindoctrination camps <laughs> will know the NEA stands for the fundamental right to abortion. It, quote, also will honor the leadership of non-binary and trans people and other survivors who have come forward to publicly name their rapists. So they Survive. are transgender, okay. they are pro-homosexual, and they believe that your children should be told that they have a right to murder their child in the womb. So no big surprise there. When we come back, we'll wrap up today's show and talk about tomorrow. We're getting ready to wrap up today's show. Stand Up For The Truth is sponsored by Lakeshore Communications Incorporated and made possible by your generous tax-deductible donations at StandUpForTheTruth.com slash donate. Now, here's Mike LeMay. Tomorrow, your comments and questions. A lot of you chiming in on Laura Perry's amazing story, Transgender to Transformed. Dave Nye and Crash are also going to address the 800-pound elephant in the room tomorrow. There's a lot of arguing going on about Calvinism, Reformed Calvinism, hyper-Calvinism, a lot of accusations being thrown all over the place by people. This is getting out of hand, and we're going to take you to God's Word, and we're going to talk about this issue, and we encourage you Talk about it like civilized Christians, not like babies throwing mud, because it's getting very, very ugly. For David Fiorazzo and Crash Connell, Mike LeMay standing up for the truth. Be bold, strong, and unashamed of the gospel, because the Lord your God is always with you.